Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, September 24th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? We will have a water cooler episode tomorrow, I promise. Our schedule is just so messed up. We have people at uh, three different writers at two different festivals around the world. Uh, it's kind of throwing things into a little bit of a mess here at Slash Home headquarters. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we'll try to do our water cooler episode tomorrow. And even that will be without Jacob and Chris. So th- th- I, we'll, we'll get to it. Uh, but let's ju- dive into the news. Yesterday after we recorded some news, actually a bunch of different news bits from the Batman hit the web, uh, some casting. Ben, what do we know? Yes, a new report says that Jeffrey Wright is in talks to play Commissioner Gordon in The Batman for director Matt Reeves. Uh, you may know Jeffrey Wright from his work in Westworld. He was also in Casino Royale. He plays uh, Felix Leiter, the CIA agent who is a, a friend and, and cohort of James Bond. And he's actually going to be reprising that role very soon in the next James Bond film, No Time to Die. And uh, this is kind of awesome casting, guys. I think because Wright, you know, he, he's he's a really good um, he's really good at doing that at being like an exposition machine and and keeping things interesting. He's done stuff like that in, in like movies like Source Code and Westworld. It seems like all his character does is just, you know, explain things or, <laughs> or wander around wondering what the hell is going on. But um, the sidekick thing, the Felix Leiter, James Bond thing shows that he can he can do that, too. He plays uh, somebody with authority very well. And I think it's really exciting to think about the idea of Jeffrey Wright standing next to Robert Pattinson's Batman and, you know, talking on a roof or something. So uh, I'm, I hopefully, you know, he's one of those Jim Gordons in the movies that actually has a little bit more to do than just stand around on a rooftop talking. Um, <laughs> because I think Wright has proven that he can do that. But uh, even if it's just, you know, a brief, a small role, I think it's exciting stuff. Yeah, no, uh, well said. Uh, I'm wondering, is this the first time that Commissioner Gordon has been a person of color? I mean, because like traditionally it's, it's a white person. Traditionally Gotham is kind of a cesspool of, you know, there's racists, there's, I mean, it, it is kind of like 
you know, I guess based on olden day, like New York City. Uh, so uh, do, do we know? Has there like because it's interesting that Matt Reeves is, you know, bringing a new look to Commissioner McGordon here. Yeah, um, I'm trying to I'm, I'm rapidly looking this up right now to see if uh, maybe the, the only one I can, I can think of is maybe like somebody in um, I don't remember who played Commissioner Gordon in uh, the Lego Batman movie. Oh, here it is. Uh, Hector Elizondo played oh. Jim Gordon in the Lego Batman movie. And that's the only one that I could think of that would be like a non-white person. Um, yeah. Maybe if, if listeners know of any others and any other incarnations of uh, Batman across the years, um, feel free to let us know. Cause that's uh, yeah, I, I would definitely want to know that. And, and it does look like they were looking for a person of color for this role. Uh, Brad, you learned some stuff, right? Yeah. So actually a, a while back uh, in an edition of superhero bits, uh, we highlighted a little story that came from Jeff Snyder uh, who he always mentions little news tidbits on podcasts that aren't quite enough for like a scoop or a story or something like that. And he happened to mention that Mahershala Ali uh, from Green Book and soon to be Marvel's Blade was actually uh, offered the role of Commissioner Gordon, but he turned it down because he wanted to play Blade uh, at Marvel. Crazy. Um, and also yesterday we got some other Batman casting news. This one in the villain department. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, just minutes after the Jeffrey Wright news came out, uh, a separate report came out saying that Jonah Hill, the two-time Oscar nominee, is also in talks to join the cast. Um, there's been some, I guess, disagreement about who he's supposed to be playing. Apparently, that disagreement actually extends to you know him and his team and Warner Brothers, the studio that is making the Batman as well, because Hollywood Reporter said that Hill was in early talks to play either the the Penguin or the Riddler in the new movie, although... There was, you know, they can't seem to agree on which person he should play, and there's a chance that they might not be able to come to an agreement and the whole thing could sort of fall apart. And then even after that, Collider reported that Hill was actually eyeing the role of the Riddler. So it seems like there's, you know, the, it's definitely a shifting scenario right now. Um, you know, they, they they don't know what the—I guess there's some—, some um, back and forth about what uh, Jonah Hill's rate should be in the movie. Apparently he's asking for something like $10 million, which is apparently uh, more than double what Robert Pattinson is supposed to be making in the lead role. So uh, we were talking in the Slack earlier and Brad's like, well, Robert Pattinson hasn't been nominated for two Oscars. So maybe that has something to do with that. So it sounds like, you know, there's just a lot of um, negotiations going on behind the scenes and uh, I, I suspect we'll be hearing more about this very soon. It, it sounds to me they like they want Jonah Hill to play Penguin, but knowing you know the physical transformation Jonah Hill has gone through the last few years, it seems like that's a role that he would not want to take. I'm wondering what you guys think. Should he be Riddler or the Penguin? I would personally rather see him as the Riddler. It seems uh, too easy to put him in the role of the Penguin, much in the same way that it seems kind of obvious to put Josh Gad in the role of the Penguin, which uh, he was kind of messed with fans that he might be cast in the role and was really just joking around about it. And I think I would like to see him take on a role that doesn't require him to just be, you know, a, a bigger guy playing a menacing person, but do, doing something a little bit different. So that's what I'm about. Or uh, I'd like to propose maybe that he plays a new villain that is a combination of the Penguin and the Riddler called the Piddler. <laughs> 
Ben, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's really hard to top the Piddler, Peter, but um, I I don't know. I, I feel like he would be a, a good Penguin as well, if that is indeed something that he's actually interested in doing. Even though, you know, as you alluded to, Peter, he's sort of slimmed down in recent years. Um, and he, he sort of like ping-pongs back and forth. Um you know, based on yeah. the roles that he's playing and stuff like that. So I'm actually, I haven't seen a recent picture of him, so I don't know like what he looks like in this exact moment. But even if he's like a skinnier, you know, slimmer version of the penguin, I think that would be interesting. And I think he could pull off, you know, that sort of uh, rich socialite um, kind of thing. And and depending on how modern an approach they want to take that, um, you know, the, the movie itself is supposed to be sort of a throwback, you know, like a, an old school noir detective kind of thing. But if it's set in modern day, it might be interesting to see, I don't know, like the penguin as like a tech bro kind of guy, you know, like somebody <laughs> somebody like that. And I could see um, Jonah Hill sort of playing that role to uh, to perfection. So um, I don't know. It, there's it's still so early in the process and they're just getting started with this casting stuff. And we haven't really heard much about what exactly these characters are going to be like in this iteration of Batman. I, I just can't imagine Jonah Hill like as a fast talking Riddler, you know, like Riddler traditionally like says these like really fast, like quips and riddles and stuff like that. I mean, hence the name. And uh, that does not seem like Jonah Hill at all, but uh, I don't know. We'll have to see. I, I'm very interested in this movie. Matt Reeves, uh, you know, has done no wrong in my book. So I'm excited to see what he puts together with the Batman but let's move on from DC to uh, Marvel. And let's talk about how Disney, I guess, uh, th- th- well, first of all, Bob Iger has a book coming out. And he's relayed a-, a bunch of stories in this book that have become news. The first of which is that Disney almost bought Marvel Studios before 2009. Uh, but there was a reason why that didn't happen. Brad, what do we know? Yes. Uh, for those who are interested, Bob Iger's new book is called The Ride of a Lifetime, Lessons Learned from 15 Years as CEO of the Walt Disney Company. Uh, it's out now. And like Peter said, there's these fun little stories coming out of it. Uh, and this one involves the opportunity that Disney uh, was proposed by former Disney CEO Michael Eisner, who brought up the idea of acquiring um Marvel characters before there was even really a Marvel Studios and before Iron Man had been released. Uh, Disney bought Marvel Studios in 2009 after the release of Iron Man before the Marvel Cinematic Universe was even truly formed. Uh, But at the time, they were worried that this would, quote, tarnish uh, the brand of Disney. Uh, And that's mostly because they were still very much focused on simply family-friendly entertainment, uh, animated stuff, you know, things like the characters that they already had, uh, and so it was. They just didn't really want to lean into that uh, edgier territory. Uh, so in the book, Iger says, "quote uh, When he's talking about the the opportunity to buy Marvel again, he says this wasn't the first time Marvel has been on Disney's radar." Early in my time working for Michael, I attended a staff lunch in which he floated the idea of acquiring them. A handful of executives around the table objected. Marvel was too edgy, they said. It would tarnish the Disney brand. There was an assumption at the time internally and among members of the board that Disney was a single monolithic brand and all of our businesses existed existed beneath the Disney umbrella. I sensed Michael knew better, but any negative reaction to the brand or suggestion that it wasn't being managed well, he took personally. So say what you will about Michael Eisner. Uh, but that's some hell of a foresight that he had to say, hey, we need to get our hands on all these Marvel characters and do something with them because this could be a big deal. And it took Bob Iger stepping up to actually do something about it. And now look at where Disney and the Marvel Cinematic Universe is now. Yeah. No, I mean, 
you know, I, I know we've talked in the past on the podcast about alternate universes where other things had happened. Imagine if Disney had acquired Marvel in that time with Michael Eisner as the head. Like, what would Marvel look like today? Like, I feel like it would be a completely different Marvel. Like, there, there would be not the Marvel Cinematic Universe as we know it. And it would probably be a lot more PG. We probably wouldn't have gotten Tony Stark. You know, first... I actually... I'm actually not sure if it would have been more PG because I do I do wonder because Michael Eisner was also the guy who uh, was behind Hollywood Pictures, you know, who were yeah. the ones who who did the more you know R-rated fair and adult movies like Judge Dredd and The Rock and Nixon, and so I, I do wonder if maybe he had an idea of making that something that you know was intentionally a little bit more edgy than what Disney had intended. Uh, and, you know, expanding in the way that they have now, because now they have, you know, this Marvel Studios that sure is family friendly, but it's not as family friendly as something like Disney's usual fare. And and the same can be said about Star Wars, too. Yeah, that makes a good segue because, you know, they Disney bought Star, Star Wars a few years later. Uh, Bob Iger in his book talks about how George Lucas got edged out of Star Wars with The Force Awakens. Uh, ben, what did we learn? Yeah, so Iger tells a story about how Disney purchased some of George Lucas's early outlines for the three new movies, and they, on according to Iger, he says that Disney like made it clear that they would not be contractually ob- obligated to use any of Lucas's ideas, and it sounds like something may have gotten lost in translation because uh, here, here's the quote from his book. He says, early on, Kathy Kennedy bought uh, brought J.J. Abrams and Michael Art up to Northern California to meet with George at his ranch and talk about their ideas for the film. George immediately got upset as they began to describe the plot, and it dawned on him that we weren't using one of the stories he submitted during the negotiation. The truth was um, they had discussed the direction in which the saga should go, and we all agreed that it wasn't what George had outlined. George knew we weren't contractually bound to anything, but he thought that our buying the story treatments was a tacit promise that we would follow them, and he was disappointed that his story was being discarded. So that's the quote there. And, uh, you know, we've heard stories like this before, some of them actually in George Lucas's own words, but it's just sort of interesting to hear Iger's perspective on the whole thing. And there's even another bit in there of like d- Iger describing George Lucas's first uh, viewing of The Force Awakens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he says, just prior to the global global release, Kathy screened The Force Awakens for George. He didn't hide his disappointment. There's nothing new, he said. In each of the films in the original trilogy, it was important to him to present new worlds, new stories, new characters, and new technologies. In this one, he said, there weren't enough visual or technical leaps forward. He wasn't wrong, but he also wasn't appreciating the pressure we were under to give ardent fans a film that felt quintessentially Star Wars. We'd intentionally created a world that was visually and tonally connected to the earlier films, not to stray too far from what people loved and expected. And George was criticizing us for the very thing we were trying to do. So that that's uh, a small portion of his quote there. And I think that's like the big... Uh, defense of The Force Awakens that every fan of that movie has, right? Like, it's so obvious that they were trying to uh, course correct from what had happened in the prequels and get people back into that magic of the original trilogy in terms of tone and visuals. And yes, they had to copy a lot of things to to do that. But I think by introducing those new characters um, and making them so lovable and interesting from the start... That's the the big defense, right? That that Abrams, yeah. you know, was boxed in, but he did the best with the circumstances that he had to to make this movie under. I just wonder, do you think we'll ever get a chance to see those treatments 
that George Lucas wrote. Like, I, I feel like they could at least adapt those into a book or a comic book or something. Like, there's something to be made of that. But then, on the other hand, that, like, you know, uh, you're compare as a company, Disney as a company is like putting that out there, like gives fans some bait to, you know, be like, oh, they should have done George's version. Right. It's like the Snyder cut. Yeah. <laughs> it's that same argument. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like maybe after this trilogy, the, the Skywalker saga comes to an end and maybe like a few years after that, maybe once the Star Wars franchise has moved on into new trilogies and new stories and stuff, maybe you know, with enough time having passed for like this trilogy to sort of uh, maybe begin to cement its own legacy, maybe they would allow something like that. Brad, do you think that Disney would ever let that story be told in any way? It feels unlikely, and pretty much for the same reasons that Peter said. I I just can't imagine that they would release it simply because it would undermine what has been done, and you would just be emboldening the fans to be like, oh, this would be so much better. We should have let George Lucas do what he wanted to do. I will say that, you know, before uh, Star Wars was sold to Disney, they did release a graphic novel version of the Star Wars, which was George Lucas's original treatment for Star Wars, original mm-hmm. script. And it was done in the style of Ralph McQuarrie's, like, original concept art. And uh, I was so excited to get this thing because it was, like, going to see what the first draft of, like, Star Wars would have been, like, you know, envisioned as. And it was horrible. <laughs> so uh, it sits on my shelf. I've read it once. Uh, it is an interesting uh, experiment, but uh, but that exists. So if that exists, maybe this could exist. Is what I'm saying. Um, but you know, let, let's talk about. Uh, we were talking about Star Wars: The Force Awakens, and I remember when that movie was coming out. They did this big thing called Force Friday, and they, they've done that for every Star Wars movie since. But it, like the hubbub around Force Friday doesn't seem to be as big nowadays uh today they announced they're doing a triple force friday brad what do we know uh well we already knew triple force friday was coming it's happening on october 4th and it's called triple force friday because it will see the release of new merchandise for three different star wars properties we will see the uh first merchandise for star wars the rise of skywalker we'll get merchandise for the mandalorian and also the new video game star wars jedi fallen order uh, and those latter two will be released in November, while Rise of Skywalker comes in December. And so it's always customary that there's a big toy release for the the new toys and T-shirts and lunchboxes and everything before the new Star Wars movie, because a lot of that stuff hits shelves early, and it's kind of the, the first real good glimpse that we start getting at certain characters and learning more story details and ships and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so that um, happens on October 4th, but this week there'll be a sneak preview of a lot of the stuff that will be coming to shelves next week on September 26th. Uh, there'll be a live stream at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, it'll have cast members from uh, Rise of Skywalker, The Mandalorian, and uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order video game, uh, seeing some of their, their action figures and, and stuff for the first time. Uh, it'll be the first time fans get to see what they'll be able to buy next week so that you can kind of plan ahead and figure out, you know, which uh, toys and stuff you want to buy. might even be a good way to plan for Christmas presents for your kids if you have uh, Star Wars fans among your family. Uh, and I always love when they do this because I every single time there's been a new Star Wars movie, with the exception of uh, Solo, since I didn't really care as much then, uh, I've gone to whatever store is open at midnight and bringing the toys out to get my hands on some of the Black Series figures and uh, usually a few Funko Pops that come out. 
Do you feel like I remember that original Force Friday? I went to the stores and like they were sold out of everything immediately. Like they did not uh, stock enough of like the Funko Pops. They didn't stock enough of the Black Series figures. Um, like has it gotten better? Um, yes and no. So it was, for Last Jedi, it was definitely easier to get a hold of stuff, but it seemed like that they had less stuff. Uh, ready at least for the launch uh, at the store that I went to. Um, I went to uh, when I went uh, for Force Friday. It's they weren't quite prepared, or at least the store where I went to, and it could have been just because I live in a more uh, a less populated area that the store was like, man, whatever, we don't care. <laughs> but uh, I was I, I was still able to get everything I wanted, but it just it seemed like they didn't have maybe as big of a stockpile ready to go this time. And I'm not sure if that's just because of a. A drop in popularity uh, or if they're just kind of hedging their bets and seeing you know what really sells well first so they know what to make more of so they're not stuck with a bunch of constable zuvio figures again <laughs> yeah do, do you think we're actually going to learn anything about the movie from these toy releases because like you said even with force awakens they had that constable zuvio figure and he is only in the film i think someone said for like three frames in the background of a scene or something like that uh like i feel like especially with JJ and his mystery box, we're just going to get like the regular characters and, you know, a Sith trooper. Yeah. I think if we'll learn anything extra, it'll probably come from the books that uh, will be released. But even, even then a lot of the books that have sensitive information, in them get held until much closer to the release of the movie, even, even just after the release of the movie. Uh, so I think we'll get a few details here and there, but I imagine they're playing this one even closer to the vest than they did the previous two movies. For sure. And they always uh, release a, a, a series of toys after the movie gets released, too, that are, like, a bit more spoilery. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the waves that come out uh, after the movie usually involve the characters that you, uh, you know, you were waiting to see until uh, after the movie came out. Speaking of J.J., th- speaking of toys, uh, he, he was originally, I think, attached to do the Micronauts. And that movie has now found a new director in How to Train Your Dragons, Dean Dublaus. Uh Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so the How to Train Your Your Dragon director is going to be writing and directing the live-action sci-fi movie Micronauts, which is based on the popular 1970s kids' toy that spawned a Marvel comic. Um, I think, actually, in our interview with him earlier this year, Peter, he told you that he's basically spent a decade of his life making How to Train Your Dragon movies, and he he said, uh, I hope to do something live-action at some point. And it sounds like this is it. Uh, he's, he's making the Micronauts movie for Paramount. So this is a movie that's supposed to be in the Hasbro cinematic universe, which will connect with characters from G.I. Joe, Mask, and Rom. And, man, strap in, guys, because I'm about to give you a description of Micronauts. <laughs> I, I never played with these toys growing up, so I'm, I'm completely unfamiliar with this as, like, a, a piece of intellectual property. But this description sounds completely insane. So here we go. The Micronauts came from the small universe Microverse, which was full of strange planets like the human-inhabited homeworld, which is made up of diverse spherical habitats that are linked together in the fashion of a molecular chain. Are you still with me? I, I barely <laughs> like even that first sentence. I'm like, wait, what? OK, uh, as someone writing the synopsis, that seems like superfluous information that we don't need to know. <laughs> They're painting the picture of the larger Micronauts atmosphere. OK, uh, a resistance assembles in response to the threat posed by an immortal dictator known as Baron Karza, who gains control of the homeworld through the creation of the body banks 
where life-extending brain transplants are performed on the rich and inhuman genetic alterations on the poor. So how any of this has to do, you know, what any of this has to do with uh, a goofy-looking toy series, I'm not sure, because that sounds like a really sort of like dark dystopian sci-fi premise, um, which is not really something that I would expect from the director of How to Train Your Dragon, which is a, a trilogy that's mostly like... Uh, I would say soaring and light and uh, and and it deals with some some heavy issues, but um, it certainly has a light touch. I'm not sure how you're going to be able to put a light touch on the Micronauts if that's the the foundation on which this whole thing is built. Well, if they put a light touch on the Transformers franchise, then so. I guess that's true with like Bumblebee. <laughs> that was that had a little bit of a lighter tone than the uh, the sort of. Um... By the way, I was joking about them putting a lighter touch. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, they like... they really did though, because Bumblebee was way lighter yeah. than like Age of Extinction or whatever those later Michael Bay oh, sure. ones were. Um, okay, I also have not played with the Micronauts. Like, so do these characters exist at a small size in our world? Is that what it is? <laughs> I have no idea, Peter. I'm very curious to see how, because especially if they do, right? Like maybe they have like Ant-Man style technology or something where they can, where they're actually really tiny and they could use that technology to uh, build up the world around them and, and make that visually interesting. But then how do those characters then interact with G.I. Joe and Mask and Rom and some of these other Hasbro characters later on down the line? I mean, that just seems... I don't know. It, it seems like they're uh, they're getting ambitious over there yeah. in the Hasbro Cinematic Universe. That's for sure. Brad, you're our resident toy fanatic. Do you know anything about the Micronauts? No, not in the least. This sounds <laughs> I, this sounds so weird and wacky to me, and I, I don't even know what's going on with that description or anything. It's, it sounds totally nuts. Well, I'll say this. I do like the How to Train Your Dragon movies, at least the first one and the last one. Maybe not the middle one so much, but um, they they were all vi visually stunning, and um, I'm excited to see what Dean Dubois can do in live action. Um, but let's uh, move on to our final story for today, and that is a bit of casting for a Will Smith movie. Brad, would we know? Will Smith is about to get dark. He has signed on to finally play a bad guy. Um, the Council is a new movie that Netflix is working on that will tell the true story of Nikki Barnes, who is the boss of a crime syndicate made up of seven black men who ruled Harlem in the 1970s and 1980s, largely thanks to revolutionary, revolutionizing the drug trade by partnering with the Italian mafia. Uh, and this all uh, unfolded in New York City during that time. And uh, if the name Nikki Barnes sounds familiar, that's because that was the rival of Frank Lucas, who is the character that Denzel Washington played in American Gangster. Uh, so Will Smith will play Nikki Barnes. Uh, and make no mistake, this is not, you know, some guy who was, you know, uh, a wrongfully convicted criminal or anything like that. This was a bad dude who led uh, a crime syndicate that uh, went to war with other, you know, mobs and their bosses uh, and did very bad things. Uh, so, so the scripts are coming from Peter Landisman, who wrote Concussion, which also starred Will Smith. There doesn't seem to be a director attached yet. So this is still uh, in development over at Netflix. But uh, I, for one, am excited simply because Will Smith has long held back from playing characters like this. Uh, he even famously turned down Django Unchained because he felt Django as a character was too vengeful and the movie would be too violent for 
him to be able to do and still have a good conscience about it. So seeing him take on a character like this, I think is exciting to me because we've, we've yet to see him really cut loose as far as being, uh, you know, an angry, you know, really just, just bad motherfucker. So I, I think this could be really cool to see. But do you really think we're going to see that? Or do you think we're going to see the, like, the, you know, the less cut down version of that to satisfy Will Smith, who has been kind of reluctant to play a bad guy his entire career? I mean, I don't know how you do that, because I'll, I'll tell you this. The New York Times described uh, Nikki Barnes as, quote, the notorious de facto incarnation of Ron O'Neill in Gordon Parks Jr.'s 1972 film Superfly. They also describe him as the flamboyant dope peddler who flooded Harlem and other black neighborhoods with heroin, led cops on frivolous 100-mile-per-hour car chases, and redefined bling. So... I don't think that you can play this character as being reserved or anything like that. And I think that this performance really should be along the lines of something like Denzel Washington's performance in American Gangster. And and as Frank Lucas, he was tough and he was just, you know, a a ruthless guy. Okay. Uh, That brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. Uh, You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find the links to all the stories we talked about on today's podcast in the show notes. This podcast, Slash Film Daily, is published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.